Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the prospects of the 2020 US presidential elections, the changes in European leadership, and what Sterling's recent plight means for British companies, with Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Mike Haslam, Head of Funds Distribution. Welcome to Word on the Street. My name is Mike Haslam um, and this is my opportunity to uh, review the news of the week and look behind the uh, main headlines. And to help me understand what's going on, I've been joined by Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer. Thanks for joining me today, Will. So the subject today, I want to cover um, leadership changes and what they mean for investors. So leadership changes has been dominated in UK media over the last few weeks, if not months, by what's going on um, in number 10. But let's skip over that. We can come back to that in a few minutes. Um, let's skip over um, across the pond uh, to the US. Uh, we are seeing the uh, campaign trail for the 2020 US presidential elections starting to sort of pick up. The Democrats are uh, going through the process of uh, picking their challenger. And President Trump seems to be in the early stages of election mode himself. But when I look at President Trump's past three years, nearly three years, um, um, as US president, he seems to be doing a pretty good job. He seems to be pretty successful. You've got the S&P hitting all-time highs, an incredible rally over the last three years. Um, US unemployment is at lows, if not very close to all-time lows. And he's got a potential Nobel Peace Prize in the post to him on the way, with his, what with his work with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. So Will, what do you think? Could he go down as the most successful US president? Difficult to say, Mike. Um, I mean, I I think we've pointed out before um, that uh, this administration kind of inherited um, quite a bit of economic momentum. Um, They did briefly manage to kind of supercharge the economy through uh, tax cuts and a kind of bipartisan uh, spending bill, a a bill agreed between the Republicans and the the, the Democrats. but that doesn't look to have changed the trend in growth uh, so far. Um, and remember, in much of the developed world, uh, elected officials um, probably have a bit more chance of influencing the distribution of wealth and income rather than the actual trend uh, in income. Okay, so how much time will you and your team be putting into analysing the uh, 2020 US presidential election? Uh, well, it is important. I mean, uh, just to give you sort of like some of the background in terms of... Um, you know, chances of re-election. So of the 42 presidents that have preceded Trump, uh, I think it's around 16 um, that have managed to um, persuade the electorate to go with them again. Now, of uh, the others, five died during the first term, uh, seven declined to run. Um, and the numbers look worse still if you eliminate the so-called kind of cocked hat presidents, so Washington, Jefferson, Madison, um, and uh, and Monroe, um, who all kind of won re-election um, before the emergence of the two-party system. Um, the I mean I don't rule it out though I mean the bookies have them quite quite narrow odds they have them about evens um, you know those who are arguing that his approval ratings are low they have been for some time and actually someone was pointing out the other day that Ronald Reagan at almost exactly the same time in the electoral cycle had very similar uh, approval ratings uh, to Trump um, before he went on to get re-elected so don't rule it out I think that's the thing but we would say this is not um, this is not an area where we have an edge, um, an ability to predict more than the market or better than the market. Um, and as, as meek as that may seem, this is an area where kind of diversification is a necessary expression of your kind of investing humility. Right, let's move a bit closer to home and Europe. And by the end of this year, a Europe that will 
be uh, quite different, a Europe without the UK, potentially, maybe, hopefully. Um, and leadership change within Europe possibly could make it a very different place. And I'm not talking about political change. I'm talking about um, Super Mario Draghi, um, who is, um, so his tenure as head of the ECB, European Central Bank, will end on the 31st of October this year. So we're looking for a new leader there. Um, but this will affect markets, won't it? A central bank, a new central banker. Yeah, I mean, I think that as well. I mean, so like you say, it's a very busy year politically for Europe. I think you've got, you know, you've got changes in leadership for the European Council, the European Parliament, uh, the European Commission and the ECB. Um, so, and, and also, you know, as you rightly point out, so Chancellor Merkel um, is um, coming to, you know, her, her incredible political career is clearly running out of road. And so you're in for you know, quite a big sea change. But remember, I think one of the things about Europe is the European project has been specifically designed um, to mitigate key person risk, if you want to call it that, um, you know, for obvious reasons. This is, this is a continent um, with still very kind of livid scar tissue um, from, you know, handing or from handing the keys to the economy to, you know, to, to charismatic individuals. Uh, so it's something they've worked very hard to avoid repeating. And finally, back to the UK, any thoughts on leadership change in the UK? Yeah, I mean, again, we make, we make similar points about sort of, you know, constitutional checks and balances a little bit. But we would point out, and have pointed out again, that this is a point in the UK's history where, uh, in the UK's recent history, where the government, where number 10 probably has a little bit more economic power um, than than maybe recently, than, than previously, um, because of you know the 2016 referendum and the importance of Brexit. Okay, so sticking with the UK, can we talk for for a minute or so about sterling, the pound, foreign exchange? So it's about this time of the year when um, we all trundle down to the post office and collect our euros or dollars or wherever you're going to this year. Thankfully, it's not me. I've got two weeks in sunny Yorkshire coming up for me. Um, but this year, we're going to find that we will be getting less euros, less dollars than last year. Uh, so the uh, value of the pound has fallen. Now, is this a sign of markets moving because of leadership change or is it other stuff, Brexit, etc.? Um, well, there are some, um, there have been some sort of worries doing the rounds or worries doing the rounds recently um, about the UK's um, current account. Essentially, we are reliant or have been for some time reliant on um, the generosity of strangers uh, as someone uh, as Governor Carney put it, and that's really, you know, that we need people to find investing in our economy attractive. And they find it attractive for a couple of reasons, you know, either you can have, you know, attractive returns available or stability or a mix of the two. And I think the concerns that um, that people have right now is looking at the UK is you've got very low returns on offer. Uh, look at the, you know, the UK bond market, you know, for 10 years, you're getting way less than inflation. Um, and that actually, you know, the more fluid political backdrop is also eating away at that kind of, you know, the attraction. So people are worrying that actually in order for the UK investment to be attractive to overseas investors, you actually need sterling to be much lower. Uh, and so that has been one of the things that may have been weighing on sterling recently. And focusing um, specifically on investment. So does does foreign exchange really matter for companies? It, it matters probably a bit more. So, so at the large cap level, you know, you find that a lot of companies have managed their overseas exposures uh, quite carefully. So you'll find that, you know, for big companies, you know, they can manufacture where they sell or they can have offsetting activities or, you know, quite sophisticated financial hedge. So actually... For the, it, it, it can be more of a burden for smaller companies, currency volatility, because it makes planning very difficult. You know, so we speak to lots of companies within the, you know, the corporate and the business bank who, you know, all worry a lot more about, um, you know, how to plan for uh, significant sterling weakness or strength and so on. It, it makes things very, um, you know, much more complicated. But I think the thing to remember from an overall economy of, uh, you know, effect is that the UK has long since ceased to sell like very price sensitive goods. And what I mean by that is, you know selling loads of coal where there's an international price 
Um, and if your currency goes down, then actually it is potentially more attractive. We're, we're selling now much more in terms of value-added goods, where our customers, um, there isn't necessarily an international price, um, and, and therefore your buyers are a little bit less sensitive to it. And so you tend to find that Britain's export story is not as sensitive as some people argue to kind of you know, big swings in sterling. But if I'm buying a company like such as Unilever, which sells what shampoo, washing powder, and toothpaste, you know, it doesn't really matter what goes on in world markets, leadership exchanges. You know, people hopefully will still be buying um, um, deodorant, washing powder, um, toothpaste, etc. So, you know, why should I bother? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to point, and I'm sure you're going to make this point yourself, is that you know, obviously, when we mention an individual company, it can't constitute and you know a, a personal recommendation. But um, I think you know the, the point you get to is which company do I buy for that safety? And one of the concerns, you know, one of the pre-existing theories about a lot of these big brands was that they're very, very attractive because you know, if I argue that you know, in 100 years' time, we'll be doing many things, but we'll still be eating Heinz baked beans, or still need deodorant, or still need razor blades, and and that these big mega brands that have sort of dominated the um, you know the market marketplace for so long are likely here to for another you know 50 100 years or whatever um, but actually more recently we've seen some quite interesting trends we've seen startups like you know the shaving company Harry's I think it is taking big chunks of share out of very established players so some of that defensive story is maybe a little bit on shakier grounds than it has been for some time with those kinds of kind of personal goods and brand space the other thing to point out is that there is a price for everything um, and in a market which you are at the moment where uh, you know, people, investors are really obsessing about two things, I mean, among other things, but yield and safety. Um, yield, because interest rates are low all around, all the way around the world, and, uh, you know, people are struggling to get a yield above inflation, they're low and negative in some places. Uh, and safety, because, and this is part of the interest rate story as well, because people are worried about, seemingly perpetually worried about the next recession. And so in such a world, it's very unlikely that a company's or an asset's defensive attributes uh, would be undervalued, probably quite the, you know, the reverse. So, so potentially at the moment, strong stable companies like Unilever could be quite expensive. Yeah, I think one of the things that people are remarking on is that the price for kind of quality and safety, uh, and this is true in the fixed income complex as well, you know, in, in government bonds um, and, and corporate bonds, you know, we're expressing that in our, uh, in our tactical, our short-term portfolio at the moment, that uh, the price for safety is high. So do I just simply sit back and wait for everything to become cheap? Do I wait for Brexit to disappear, trade wars to disappear, so there's nothing to worry about? Well, always, you know, this is the, the point that we, you know, wake is if you wait for the perfect moment to get invested, that's usually probably the worst moment. Um, the point from us is always, you know, just simplify it and boil it down to what, what you're trying to do. And investing is simply, again, it's an expression of a positive view on the future of invention, of humankind's ability to invent new stuff and get better at using it. If you believe that we're going to continue making progress in AI and all sorts of other kind of less fancy areas, then, you know, an investment in a diversified portfolio of assets is, is very much today is the day for you. Will, as always, you make sense to what is a turbulent media in my eyes. Uh, so th three things I take away from this. Number one, don't overrate your chances of being able to predict any kind of political change over here or, or anywhere. Number two is the economy that tends to matter um, uh, for investors. And number three, there is always something to worry about or there is for me. So don't let that stop you. So thank you again for your time today, Will. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.